Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. Would you take up the swine flu vaccine if you were offered it? Or do you think that the bother and the risk of possible side effects outweigh the benefits? It's a question that seems to divide the nation, as Rachel Thomas found out on the streets of Cambridge. Are you, do you know if you're in one of the target groups for the swine flu vaccine? Uh, I don't think I am, actually. And do you wish you were in one of the target groups for the vaccine? Uh, not really. I don't really. I think, to be fair, all I've heard is it's just like a cold. Yeah. And if it's a cold, well, it's a cold. <laughs> and so what's been the best source of information for you? Like, what, what have you found most useful in kind of deciding whether it's worth getting the vaccine? Um, not a lot, really. I mean, you hear all about news and things like people dying and so yeah. on. But I think they're all just extreme cases. Yeah. I think, to be fair, it's just... It's just going to be a cold. I am in one of the target groups. I've got asthma, mm-hmm. um, and I haven't decided whether I want to get it done yet or not. So I'm kind of not making the appointment just yet. Is there been any information that's kind of helped you make the decision so far, or? Um, not really. Um, it's all a bit confusing actually yeah. at the minute. Um, and have you felt? Is it the media coverage that's been confusing, or are you finding the kind of government advice? All of use- it, because you've got also the nurses in in the hospitals that have also got different views on it as well so it's all kind of contradicting itself. So can you tell me are you in one of the target groups for the swine flu vaccination? Yes I am. And can you tell me which target group that is? And that's the NHS frontline. And do you think that you'll take up the vaccine? Um, yes um, I have already actually. <laughs> ah, right. And what made you make the decision? What information was it that made you make the decision to take the vaccine? Um, I think it's a combination of past experience that I've had flu vaccines in the past and haven't really suffered um, ill effects. The information probably that was the most convincing was that the the main ingredients around the vaccine are the same from year to year and the only thing that's different about this swine flu vaccine is the um, flu um, virus itself. So there's quite a wide range of opinions here, both in terms of the dangers and benefits of vaccination and in terms of the quality of the information we're given to make up our minds. But what rarely gets discussed in the media and in government information is exactly what kind of work goes into planning a vaccination programme and making sure that a vaccine is safe. We spoke to Paddy Farrington, a professor of statistics at the Open University and a vaccination expert. We first asked him what kind of things can go wrong if a vaccination strategy isn't carefully planned. He gave us an example involving the famous, or maybe rather infamous, MMR vaccine. For instance, before MMR was introduced, there was the vaccination program for, for rubella was targeted at um, adolescent girls aged 12 to 14 years old um, in order to specifically protect them against a congenital, or their babies against congenital rubella syndrome. Um, now, the, the plan was to replace this sort of targeted and limited vaccination program by a mass vaccination program of young children at the age mm-hmm. of 15 months. Um, and the, the purpose of this was to uh, try and extend uh, the, the, uh, the coverage, but also um, put three vaccines into one and therefore uh, boost the coverage of other antigens, particularly measles. But the danger in a thing like that is that if, if, you, don't, um, if you don't reach enough of the, prop, uh, of the population, 
you can change the dynamics of the infection in such a way that caused more harm than when you didn't have it. So if you vaccinate a proportion of the population, one of the implications of that will be to increase the average age at which people get infections. Now for rubella, the age at which you want to avoid infections most is uh, early adulthood. And so there's a danger if you vaccinate only partially against rubella that you're going to actually increase the proportion of infections happening in um, women who might be of childbearing age, mm -hmm. which is the group that you want to protect. And so you really need to, to make sure that you reach a uh, high vaccination coverage in order to for this phenomenon not to happen. For some years, what was done was to vaccinate with MMR at 15 months, but keep the Rubella Adolescent Girls Program going uh, until it was uh, it was clear that the uh, that it was no longer needed, and then it was it, it, it was stopped. To understand the potential impact of a vaccination strategy, epidemiologists use mathematical models. These models essentially all look the same, no matter what disease you're dealing with. They divide the population up into several classes, for example a class of susceptible people, a class of infected people and a class of recovered people. And the rate at which people pass from one class into the other is governed by mathematical rules. The precise nature of these rules, the parameters that govern them, depend on the characteristics of the disease in question. And the information that determines the values of these parameters is not so much of a medical nature than of a social one. Well, you need to you need to know somehow something about how the how the infection is transmitted. So that's done um, uh, using um, assumptions about the contact structure. Mm. Uh, that's the rate at which people contact other people, um, and the key determinant here is is age group. Uh, largely because uh, that's a sort of variable that, that somehow is closely related to a variation in important contact patterns such as um, home contacts, school contacts, university contacts. All of these are governed largely uh, by, by age. Mm -hmm. So age is an important factor and uh, you need to be able to somehow to model um, or to represent the variation in contact rates between different age groups at different ages. Um, now, it's not easy to do that because we don't have direct information on that. Um, and so you need to deduce that indirectly. And the kind of data you use or typically used in these circumstances is what we call serological data. And that's um, data on the prevalence of prior infection obtained from blood samples. So you take, uh, you sample bloods from from a sample of, of, of individuals, and then you test those uh, those residues, those blood residues, from um, for the presence of various antigens, which indicate that the individuals might have been infected prior to the date in which you've you've, you've done the test, and that gives you um, some indication that the rate at which individuals get infected in different age groups. And that's basically the information you used to then derive uh, something about the the transmission parameters. But the problem is that it's you're only seeing one side of the of the story. You're only seeing the people who get infected, and that inform you don't get the information on who is infecting them. So in, there remains a, a sort of fundamental indeterminacy in this, and it's necessary. Uh, to try out, to do sensitivity analysis, to try out various assumptions about who makes contact with whom. 
um, all of which are, are consistent with what you observe, but can have different uh, implications. So, um, I mean, that remains a sort of an important issue in research into uh, the mathematical and statistical analysis of infectious diseases, is how to determine these, uh, these contact structures. The most important summary statistic when it comes to modeling how an infection spreads is called the basic reproduction number of a disease. It measures how many people an infected person goes on to infect, on average, assuming that everybody in the population is susceptible to the disease. The aim of a vaccination program should be to bring the basic reproduction number down to an effective reproduction number, which is less than one. This means that with the vaccine in the population, every infected person now goes on to infect less than one other person on average, so the infection won't spread like wildfire. Um, the basic concept underlying that is a, is a stochastic one, um, which is the idea of a branching process. So you have uh, one case that generates a number of other cases, each of which generate a number of other cases. So the key quantity there is the, is the average number of cases generated by one. Um, and that's basically um, the, the, uh, the, the reproduction number. Epidemiologists use information from blood sample to estimate the basic reproduction number of a disease. For swine flu, it's around 1.5 compared to around 12 for measles. When you're planning a vaccination program, you can then use mathematical models to see if the program is likely to push the reproduction number down to less than 1. And even when the program has already been rolled out, you can keep an eye on the reproduction number to monitor the progress of the infection in the population. And that's why, for instance, resulting from the, the sort of concerns over the safety of the um, MMR vaccine, there was a reduction in the, uh, in the um, uh, coverage of MMR. And in some areas, the effective reproduction number uh, will be going over one, and there is a danger of epidemics. So there have been happening lo localized epidemics mm. <coughs> of measles. Mm. Uh, similar in the 1970s, uh, there was a big concern over the uh, in the mid 70s over the um, safety of the whooping cough vaccine that was used then and the there it was a much more dramatic fall the coverage went from 81% to 30% in, in, the in vaccination in vaccination wow. in in the mid 70s and uh, the result of that was the reappearance of epidemic uh, epidemics of whooping cough in uh, in the, the several mm -hmm. s subsequent epidemics with of course uh, uh, children dying of um, uh, of whooping cough um, or the consequences of whooping cough so i mean there it was very clear that uh, you reduced the the coverage of the vaccine very quickly the the uh, mm -hmm. epidemic pattern comes back so it's obviously essential to make sure that the vaccination program reaches all those people it has been designed to reach but in the case of MMR and the whooping cough vaccine, people were frightened by possible side effects. So what kind of effort goes into making sure that a vaccine is safe? I mean, the safety of vaccines is, uh, well, it's, it's important, like safety of any drugs mm. is important. But it's a bit different in the case of vaccines because they're given to um, populations of uh, entirely healthy children. These are the vaccines given in the mass vaccination, routine vaccination programs. Um, and they're, they're given uh, to perfectly healthy children for preventive purposes. Uh, I mean, while vaccines are sort of are, are very uh, intensively tested prior to being 
licensed, it's not possible to test them in large populations, uh, largely for, I mean, for ethical reasons, apart from anything else. It's just not possible to do it. So uh, it can only be done, um, you know, testing for very rare uh, possible side effects, which might occur at a rate of, I don't know, the order of one in 10 or 100,000, that kind of thing can only be done once the vaccine is out there being used. Otherwise, we'd never have any vaccine. Um, so so what's important is to have a, a system, uh, ready, uh, a sensitive uh, system to detect um, possible problems with new vaccines when they're introduced. When the MMR vaccine was first introduced, there were worries that there might be a side effect. This was an autism, but a condition called aseptic meningitis. It's not a serious condition, and children recover from it quickly, but still, you'd want to avoid it. Usually, drugs are tested in large-scale clinical trials, where a group of people who've been given the drug are compared to a control group who've not been given the drug. In this case, this was impossible, as the vaccine was already out in the population. Farrington became involved with this problem and developed a statistical method for testing for side effects once the vaccine is already being used. This uh, case series uh, method was uh, basically developed to, to, to sort of produce a simple way of, of, uh, of analysing the kind of data that we were getting routinely from, from hospitals, which is data on, on cases, data on on children who had had an adverse event. What's unusual about this method is that it doesn't it doesn't use a um, it doesn't use a control group a separate control group uh, which is what most of the other uh, yeah. methods use so you just you're just really using the cases themselves and their time uh, their time course over say the in, in this case the second year of life uh, and seeing uh, whether the the events are clustering shortly after vaccination or not uh, it, it, you need to do that uh, accounting for the fact that you don't have the children who didn't become cases, so you need to adjust the analysis in such a way that it's not biased. In a conventional trial, you'd collect your data and then look at the probability that a child got aseptic meningitis. In this case, this doesn't make sense because you already know that a child had aseptic meningitis because they turned up as one of the cases in your data. So instead you work with conditional probabilities. You look at the probability that a child got aseptic meningitis at a particular time, given that they did get aseptic meningitis. You're asking for each individual uh, who... I know that, that that child had an aseptic meningitis. Did this aseptic meningitis occur in the period after vaccine that we're interested in or at some other period? and you look at the probability of that happening, um, and then you sort of manipulate those probabilities to get an estimate of the, the relative incidence, which is the incidence shortly after vaccine, in a defined period after vaccination, uh, divided by the incidence at other times, mm -hmm. adjusted for age effects. One of the advantages of doing it, if you, if you can do it, and you can't always because there are assumptions you need to verify, um, is that because the analysis is within individuals, you can control for any any factors that don't vary uh, within individuals. So that adjusts, for instance, for the socioeconomic uh, st uh, status of the child, which can be important in that it can confound traditional analyses in that, I don't know, for instance, uh, children in, from poorer backgrounds 
uh, might be more prone to these conditions, but might be more or less prone to being vaccinated than mm. other children. So that might introduce bias. Um, well, this method controls for that kind of thing. In the case of the MMR vaccine, Farrington's method worked. A particular component of the vaccine was identified as being responsible for aseptic meningitis and it was withdrawn. The method was also used to test for connections between MMR and autism, but these were not confirmed. So while it's impossible to be 100% sure that a vaccine, or anything else for that matter, is completely safe, statistical methods like those developed by Farrington and other statisticians at least keep the uncertainty down to an acceptable minimum. Farrington's method is retrospective, so in case of swine flu, we'll have to wait a few months until it can be used. And while for the MMR vaccine there was plenty of time to run mathematical models and test for the impacts of the vaccine on the population, in the case of swine flu, the government had to act quickly. There simply wasn't the time to use extensive mathematical modelling. So on the whole, what does Farrington think about how the government reacted to the swine flu outbreak? I, mean, I think the government's response has been perfectly reasonable. I think... Um, um, I think at the beginning of the outbreak, it was not at all clear what we were presented with. Uh, we were, um, you know, there was a sort of a quite a high apparent mortality ratio in in Mexico, and um, <clears throat> you know there are memories of of, of past outbreaks of, of flu which have which have killed a lot of people. Mm. Uh, so there is a concern. There's a constant concern. This this you know this is the time. So I think they they acted uh, with a degree of caution. Which now it's turned out that's to be it's it's a lot milder than had been thought previously. Uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable to uh, introduce the vaccination this targeted vaccination program. I think that's the rational way to to approach mm. it. And um, there will be surveillance of, of the vaccine to identify any, any possible problems. It's unlikely that they, there mm. will be. But I, I think, I mean, one thing to say generally is it does seem to be um, probably ever since the BSE problem and particularly as, you know, thinking also the, the autism and MMR uh, uh, crisis, uh, there's a lot of sort of... Um, questioning of vaccination policy in, in, the, in the British public. And uh, it's important to have good surveillance systems and robust statistical methods to be able to find problems quickly or to be able to accumulate evidence that vaccines are safe. And it is important to do that and to try and dispel these fears, which are sometimes, in my view, quite irrational, uh, about uh, you know, um, conspiratorial views uh, about vaccines, um, most of which are, well, all of which are, I think, unfounded. And that's it for this episode of the PLUS podcast. There's an article to go with this podcast, which you can find on the PLUS website at plus.maths.org, entering vaccination into the search facility. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. <laughs>